to come to live among us. But he came with a purpose, and that was to what? Die on the cross, ultimately to purchase salvation. Um, I love rescue mission type of movies. I love real military rescue missions that take place. And, and I was reviewing some of those. I googled some and trying to recollect my mind and you know, where the idea where, where there's hostages that have been taken and SEAL Team 6 comes in and, and rescues them, you know, and it's, it's a glorious story. You might remember when those pirates off the coast of Somalia um, ca- or took as hostage Jessica Buchanan and Paul Thisted, and they were taken by pirates, but SEAL Team 6 came in and rescued them and got them out of there and killed all nine of the pirates. Um, One that's a little older that uh, maybe some of you won't remember, Operation Solomon happened January 5th, 1985. It it was after the termination of Operation Moses, interesting biblical names, but uh, Operation Moses was revealed due to a media leak. But uh, during that time, there were 15,000 Ethiopian Jews that needed to be transferred to Israel whose lives were in danger And so in order to evacuate them, they had 34 hours, and it took 30 airliners and some other aircraft, cargo aircraft, to actually complete that mission. And as as wonderful as that is, how God's used these various missions in different ways, it's a picture, and just a faint picture, of the greatest rescue mission ever attempted and succeeded, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Matthew one twenty one, She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save, rescue from danger, his people, what? From their sins. That's the greatest rescue mission ever, because we have fallen in Adam, as Adam is our great-great-grandfather, and, and, and so we're sinners already by our nature, but then when we're born, we're sinners by practice, and, and enslaved to sin, and we're depraved, and there's no way we can live up to the standards of God's holiness apart from supernatural intervention. And then, of course, as we think of the Incarnation, and as we think of of Jesus Christ and and what he came for. There's all kinds of confusion in our day with red-suited characters going around. Uh, They're blown up balloons on people's roofs. They're uh, mystical tales that are told to children. And it's it's really distracts, doesn't it, from what Jesus really came to do. St. Clair Ferguson, in his book on life in Christ, uh, says this, he says, for another thing, we may degenerate our Lord into a Santa Claus Christology. How sadly common is it for the church to manufacture a Jesus who is a mere reflection of Santa Claus? And that's really what a lot of churches have done. You know, if you're good, you're rewarded. If you're not, you're punished. These types of things. He goes on to say, Santa Christ, here's a Pelagian view. And I'm not going to take time to explain those terms. Jesus assumes that you've been good. The semi-Pelagian view. Jesus is a Santa Christ, a slightly more sophisticated Jesus, and who is Santa-like and gives gifts to those who have already done the best they could. Thus, Jesus' hand, like Santa's sack, opens only when we can give 
an upper percentile answer to none too weighty of a probe, have you done your best this year? Or the mystical Jesus as the Santa Christ. Like Santa Claus, it's important because of the good experiences that we have when we think about him. Irrespective of historical reality, it doesn't really matter whether the story is true or not. It's the important thing is the spirit of Santa Christ. And so you see that sometimes too. Versus the biblical Christ. The biblical Christ did not come to add to the comforts that you already have. The biblical Christ sees you as lost and ruined in Adam and comes to rescue you and to save you, to do what you could never do on your own. He came on a deliverance mission to save sinners. And for that, we're grateful. Well, let's look in Matthew chapter 1. You'll remember last week we spent the entire sermon on the genealogy, verses 1 to 17. Uh, We noted a few things about that, and I'm not going to review it all, but number one is, it's not a line of merit. Here's all the righteous people and their father and their descendants and so forth and so on, but it is a line of grace. The line is listed with adulterers, with murderers, with prostitutes, and so it's a line of grace. And so now we'll finish chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and follow along with me as we read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and she called his name Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is inspired and true and sufficient for all of life. And we thank you for even this brief account at the end of Matthew 1 and the the doctrine that it contains and the application that is implied that we indeed are sinners in need of rescue. And so, Lord, we pray that that message would go forth with clarity today as we consider this greatest rescue mission ever Lord, we pray that you would speak to each and every heart here in exactly the way that they need to hear from you. And we know, Lord, that you speak not in audible voices or dreams, for those types of revelation have ceased, but you speak through your word and your servants who proclaim your word. And so, Lord, help the weak one who is seeking to proclaim it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some try to discredit the Christmas story in general because it's like, after all, 
study Matthew, study Luke. They're, they're really diverse accounts, aren't they? I mean, one is, is directed towards Mary. The other is directed towards Joseph. Um, there's, there's different, I mean, even the genealogies are different the way they're given. The other accounts don't even mention much, right? I mean, John goes way back into before time even began, doesn't give this, these, this type of historical account. Um, Mark, of course, just abruptly jumps right in to the gospel and Jesus' earthly ministry. And so the diversity of these gospels does not discredit the truth of what is being proclaimed. As we mentioned last week, Matthew's gospel in particular is directed towards who? The Jews in particular. And so it is geared towards that, and thus you have again and again, like verse 22 in our text, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That phrase occurs again and again. Over 40 Old Testament references or direct quotes, and then several where it's said to be specific, specific fulfillment. And so Matthew is directed more towards a Jewish audience. Luke, on the, on the other hand, is directed more towards a Gentile audience. And so just because there's differences, it doesn't undermine what is there. You might think of it like this, if if our family and another family went on a vacation to Yosemite, we're hiking on trails, we all encounter a bear on a certain hike on one day, we see deer on other days. If we were all to write an account of our vacation, some might focus on that bear that, that startled them so much. Others might say, well, I just love seeing the deer every morning and got so close I could almost pet it or something. like." There would be different accounts, they'd all be truthful, but there'd be different emphases. And so to say that just because the Gospels are not identical, they complement each other. They don't contradict each other. But the important thing that Matthew is bringing out here is that Joseph is in the royal line going all the way back to David. Look at verse 1 again. This is the record of the genealogy of what? Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. It's important to link him to David. The Davidic covenant said that there would be someone that would come in the line of David who would reign forever. And that person, of course, we know is Jesus Christ. Look in our text in verse 20. When the angel comes in the dream saying, Joseph, notice this, have you ever noticed this? Son of David. Did you ever notice that before? Son of David, do not be afraid. What is that doing? That is linking Joseph, although not physically, but it's linking him in the line to Messiah as that foster father. But he's the legal status of father by that statement being recorded there. The events in Matthew records that they're surely historical, but they're also supernatural And so first of all, in verse 18, we see the Virgin Mary was found to be with child. Notice it says in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ. It picks back up from where, uh, verse 1, the record of the genealogy. It's the same word in the original, uh, the record of the birth of Jesus. And so it's picking back up after the genealogy. Now we're going to zoom in onto the event that I've set, set the stage for. And so Mary was engaged, betrothed means engaged, to Joseph before they came together, that is, before they had sexual relations of any shape, 
form or kind. Now, most of you know Jewish marriages had two phases to them. The, the, the portion of betrothment, which was much stronger than a regular engagement today. It was a promise, a, a strong promise that you would marry, but it was before the actual legal uh, marriage. And so it was more thought of as a legal engagement that would last typically a year, sometimes longer. And this was something that was not entered into lightly. I love this girl. I'm going to get engaged right away. And then next month, it's like, well, she really wasn't the right one. And somebody else nicer came along or whatever. It's that willy-nilly thing that you see today is not the way it was in the first century. It was not something that you entered into lightly. And it would not be something that you would break lightly either. As I said, before the two came together indicates before they had sexual relations of any kind. Now, the second phase was the actual marriage ceremony. Now, it doesn't say, and Mary was 13, or Mary was 14, and, you know, I've got a daughter 9 and a daughter 18, and to think of a thir- my daughter at 13 and, in any way uh, being ready to be married is, is difficult in our day. But it was actually pretty common for 13, 14, 15-year-old young women to be marryable. Typically, the male would be older, um, which you would hope, <laughs> but uh, typically the male would be older. But, but women, young women like that, were considered marriable. Verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Her husband found Mary to be with child. Uh, can you, you can imagine that uh, the idea of his being shocked and and the horror that would come upon you as a man that's engaged to a young woman and suddenly she's found to be with child. What's happened? Where have I gone wrong? The temptation to anger. But it says here that he's a, literally a just man. He's, he's, he's a righteous man, a good man, a proper man. And he's not willing to disgrace her, to make a public spectacle of her as he could. I mean, just think for a moment of the disappointment. You know, again, this is not something that, well, this is my third en- engagement, the other two. Bur- no, it's, this is the engagement. This is the woman you're going to spend the rest of your life with, and she's found to be with child. But he does not react in anger. He's a just man. He's a strict observer of the law, so he would not proceed to marry her, but he resolves to put her away quietly and discreetly as privately as possible. And so, looking at the verse 20, but when he had considered this, so he's, he's, he's planning his attack, right? How I'm going to have to deal with this. As he's considering this, what happens? Revelation comes. And this time in a dream, it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Angels typically come on the scene in the Bible when there is a need for revelation to be given. And you see this even here. There's a need for revelation here. Joseph's about to do something here, and and the angel intervenes. Again, the whole idea of Joseph, son of David, links him 
uh, to this genealogy, and that's very important for him to understand and to consider. So Joseph has not acted hastily. He's acted very reservedly, um, and he receives this revelation. Now, why is the virgin birth so important? It proves the reliability of Scripture. Uh, Galatians 4.4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God did what? He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, under the law. Even in the Apostles' Creed, which I guess we read the Nicene Creed a few weeks ago in our worship, but uh, the Apostles' Creed, it's after it describes the Father and gives four of the most common words for Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son, and our Lord, it goes on to describe him who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. But back to the, the angel as he would come. He gives the address, Joseph, son of David, which would be encouraging to hear. But then notice the, the next words, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Those are words of comfort. In fact, the angel told Mary the same thing. Do not fear, you have found favor with God. And here it's, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She has not been unfaithful. This is according to the plan of God. Do not be afraid to take her. The conception is that of the Holy Spirit. Brethren, the virgin birth is one of the most essential doctrines, one of the primary doctrines that gets attacked. And it's been attacked uh, for centuries. There's nothing new under the sun. But the doctrine of the virgin birth is absolutely essential because Jesus would have just been another son of Adam if it wasn't a supernatural conception. Being born, born of a virgin emphasizes his sinlessness so that he is a substitute that could stand in our place. Another sinner can't stand in another sinner's place. He had to be sinless. Truly, he is the second Adam. Where Adam fell in the garden, Jesus comes to succeed. And he does so victoriously. Paul writes of this in Romans 5, in verse 19, For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many are made righteous. We were Christmas caroling in the neighborhood the other night, um, and in front of the mosque, one of the songs we sung, Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Now, different times throughout church history, the doctrine of the virgin birth has been attacked, but it really came under attack through the 19th century German liberalism, and as did many other doctrines. Uh, there were many church leaders that vehemently opposed this truth. Um, they would say various things like in Isaiah 7.14, which we didn't read today, but where it talks about the virgin giving birth, that that, doesn't, oh, that word doesn't always mean virgin. It's true. It doesn't. But that doesn't undermine the, the, the doctrine of the virgin birth. Matthew makes it clear that Jesus was conceived without a human father. And so just to point to an, a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which actually is one of the places that does, there's a dual application there. We don't have time to turn there in Isaiah 7. 
but is, is not, does not undermine this truth. 25 years ago, about 1990, there was a survey done. Seminary students in not, not uh, Catholic uh, seminaries, but Protestant seminaries, and there was a survey done, and 56% of the students studying for the ministry rejected the idea of the virgin birth. Rejected the idea of the virgin birth. I'm studying to serve God, supposedly claiming to hold to this book, but I really don't believe some of the doctrines contained there. Another survey that UC Berkeley did uh, um, polled various denominational leaders of their view of the virgin birth. 69% of American Baptists did believe in the virgin birth, 66% of Lutherans, 57% of Presbyterians, under 40% for Episcopalians and Methodists. What does that say? It says that the various denominations in our country are a mess that as little as you know, one-third to two-thirds you believe that it's one of the core doctrines of the church. Popular evangelical leaders rejecting the idea of the virgin birth even in recent years. Albert Moeller in his briefing a couple weeks back said this, the doctrine of the virgin birth was among the first to be questioned and then rejected after the rise of historical criticism and the undermining of the biblical authority that inevitably followed. Critics claimed that since the doctrine is taught in only two of the four Gospels, it must be optional. The Apostle Paul, they argued, did not mention it in his sermons in the book of Acts, and so it must not have believed it. Besides, the critics argued, the doctrine is just so supernatural. Modern heretics like retired Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong argue that the doctrine is just evidence of the church's overclaiming of Christ's deity. Notice that. It is said, or it, it is, Spong says, to tell us it's an entrance myth, and it goes along with the resurrection myth, which is the exit myth, and Moeller goes on to say, if only Spong was a myth. But <laughs> you get the idea, this, this entrance, entrance myth that, that he came of a virgin and then that he really rose from the dead. Of course, you know, this guy, an evangelical leader, I believe in England, denying the virgin birth and the resurrection of Christ, but claiming to hold to this book. It's absolutely absurd. You may ask yourself, why is this so critical? Why get so uptight over denying this little area of the virgin birth? Because if you deny the virgin birth, you deny his deity. And that, that, if you deny his deity, then he, his, his ability to be the Savior is undermined. This stubborn unbelief arrogant thinking that somehow man's mind can figure out more and beyond what the revealed Word of God says is absurd and yet so prevalent in our day. The integrity of God's truth abideth still. We can be sure of it. Romans chapter 3 and verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, their, un- their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true in every man a liar. So their stubborn unbelief is on them, not on the faithfulness of God. 
It is noteworthy to see the wisdom of the Holy Spirit who put these truths on the very first page of the New Testament again to magnify these truths and the importance of them. Charles Wesley captured these truths and harked the herald angels. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's wound, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So the virgin birth, the, the substitutionary atonement of Christ upon the cross, his, his burial, three days in the tomb, actually being dead, his resurrection, his ascension, and, and yea, even his second coming are essential truths all linked to his deity. If you undermine his deity, you undermine all of those truths. Well, moving on, verse 21, the specific mission of Jesus uh, revealed. And so here it is to what? Save his people. His name reveals the nature of his mission. Uh, Jesus is the same as Joshua in the Hebrew, or Jehovah is salvation. And so he is, as it were, the second Joshua that comes to lead his people, to lead them free into the promised land. The very meaning of his name communicates to us our real need and desperate condition uh, for a Savior. And He is a supernatural Savior. He is full of grace to a sin-cursed people. Listen to just some of the names given to Jesus. The first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the Ancient of Days, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Anointed One, Messiah, he is prophet, priest, and king. He is our Savior, the only wise God, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Good Shepherd, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, just to name a few. The name Jesus itself occurs 700 times in the Gospel. Jehovah saves, Jehovah saves, Jehovah saves again and again, and a hundred times in the book of Revelation. Well, how does he save his people? It's not magical, right? How does he actually do it? What will he do? He comes to save and to rescue. And, and many of those military missions that I, that I spoke about earlier, some of them had the possibility of not being 100% successful. There was the possibility of loss of life, of losing a hostage or two and so forth, but was with God, this plan is perfect, and he loses none. He dies for every single one of his elect chosen from before the foundation of the world, those whom he set his love upon. There's a particular people in which Jesus Christ had a mission to come so that in the Gospel of John he says again and again, I have done the work that you have given me. Whom, again and again in John 17, here are the people whom you have given me and I give them back to you. He saves us from the guilt of our sin and its deserved punishment, which is an everlasting torment in hell. Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have, present tense, redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. 
the idea of redemption is, is to be bought, bought back in, in the first century con, context is, is slaves were bought and sold in a third in the Roman Empire. A third of the souls living were slaves. And so the buying of selling of slaves and there would be a redemption, a payment that would be paid to free a slave. And that's the picture here. We're shackled to our sin. We cannot save ourselves. He comes to redeem and to grant forgiveness of sins. The power of sin is broken. We are new creatures in Christ. And who is it? It says specifically in our text that He will save His people. There's a particular people, as I referenced just a moment ago, a particular people that, that He set His love upon, that He is, that he's sent the mission of the Son of God to go and to purchase just as those other missions. You think of the Titanic, 1912, maiden voyage, greatest ship ever built. Ha, 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 the engineers say it's unsinkable. God is, you know, I just love how that, so it ends up sinking, hitting an iceberg, and and goes down, and and out of, I believe, 2,200 people, these are rough numbers, 1,500 perished, 700 were saved from the icy waters of the Atlantic Ocean. But the idea here that many perish, but many are also saved. And so too, even in the plan of God as man has plummeted himself into ruin uh, with Adam's sin, that God, the miracle is that any would be saved. When you understand the perfection of God and His holiness, that why and how He could save any of us is the, is the amazing thing. Some people say, well, why doesn't he save all? That's not within his purpose. And we cannot expand and try to explain the mind of God. Paul in Romans and Galatians explains who God's people are. And it is the spiritual Israel. It is the church, the fulfillment of the Jewish audience and the Jewish people. It's not the physical seed of Israel only, but the spiritual seed of Israel. Will there be several that are real Jews that among that spiritual seed? Yes and amen. I hope there's many more. Paul develops that in Romans 9. Are you among his people today? As you sit here, do you have the assurance that yes, Jesus Christ, yes, he was born, but he came to die and that he died for me? Do you have that assurance today that you are among his people do you understand that you're a sinner in need of deliverance do you understand that if you keep playing around with god and putting it off that someday you will awaken and be taken from this life and awaken in eternity and stand before god to answer for your sins not only the sins of commission that you have done that you know are wrong, but all those sins of omission where you should have done something and you did not do it. You've missed the mark of God's perfection. And He will save people. He saves people away and out of their sin to deliver them from their sin. But you've got to cry out and ask for forgiveness. To see yourself as a wretched sinner, to understand your need. Even the Apostle Paul, he says in 1 Timothy, it's a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came into the world, there's the incarnation, to what? To save sinners. And then Paul doesn't say, and I've elevated myself to be the least of sinners. He says, I'm the greatest of sinners. 
And he goes on to say that I'm a textbook example, that's a paraphrase of the Greek word that would occur in the verses following, that I would be an example unto others of what God can do with saving a sinner for his glory. Brethren, the incarnation is a glorious doctrine. And that's one of the the wonderful things about Christmas is that we're reminded of this doctrine that we should be talking about all throughout the year. It's not as though we're only allowed to talk about it in the month of December. But without it, there could be no atonement. And we talk about the cross every Lord's Day and the work that He's accomplished for us on the cross. We celebrate the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. The Son assumed a genuine human body. He was a real human while remaining perfectly God. The hypostatic union of the divine nature and the human nature wedded together into one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he could be the mediator. And then in verse 22 and 23, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Before the vir- Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. Isn't it interesting? It says it right here in one twenty-three, In the middle of the gospel, in the context of church discipline in Matthew 18, he talks about where two or three are gathered, there I am, where in your midst. And the Great Commission at the very end of the gospel, right, as he sends them out, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am what? With you always. Emmanuel, God with us, even at the beginning, throughout, in the context even of the church where he walks among the lampstands, according to Revelation, and then even with that missionary or a mission call to go and make disciples, he is with us. And we see in verse 24 and 25 very quickly, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to the son, and he called his name Jesus. What do we see here? We see here that Joseph obeys exactly as what was revealed to him. Application. What should we say in regards to this glorious text here that would round out chapter 1? Well, as I've already mentioned, in regards to the genealogy, that this is a line of grace, not a line of merit. And so if you're coming here today, and maybe you're visiting, and, and maybe you've got a lot of confidence in the good works that you've done this past year, and, and thinking that God surely would accept me because of all the good things I've done, realize it's not by works, it's by grace alone. As the hymn writer says, <clears throat> number 80 in our hymnal, Praise my soul, the God who sought thee, wretched wanderer far astray, found thee lost and kindly brought thee from the paths of death away. Praise with love's devoutest feeling him who saw my guilt-born fear and the light of hope revealing bade the blood-stained cross appear. We're all sheep that wander away from God apart from His effectual grace of pulling us in and redeeming us and even causing us to persevere unto the end. 
what a glorious thing it is to consider God with us. That He dwells amongst His people. And, and just, just think of a biblical theology of the temple going back all the way to the garden where, where God is walking amongst Adam and Eve in the first three chapters. You see in Exodus a tabernacle being built and when it's all done to prescribed exactly the way God wants it, God settles down upon it and God dwells with His people. Solomon's temple, the same thing. Jesus Himself comes in bodily form. I come and the, and, and, and the to dwell among us. And then in Revelation, the last few chapters, you see the new heavens and the new earth, and it says there's no need of sun and moon. God will be their light and will dwell with His people. God with us is a glorious thing if you're a child of God. But if you're hiding and cherishing your lust and your sin, and you, re- you refuse to repent of your sin, and you refuse to embrace Jesus Christ, There is nothing but certain torment for you. If this describes you, my lost friend, it's as though you were on the Titanic. You're on the Titanic. Your ship has sunk, and you're not in the icy waters of the cold Atlantic about to freeze to death and quickly go unconscious, but there's flames there, the flames of hell that are there licking at your skin of which you will be plunged down into for all eternity. But today, the door of opportunity stands open, but you must cry out and ask God to have mercy on you, admitting that you're a sinner, and embrace Christ by faith. Brethren, the cross and the empty tomb testify that God will never forsake us. Those of us who are in Christ, no matter what we go through, no matter what health affliction, no matter what cancer comes upon us or what tragedy comes upon us, we know that God is with us. Tragedy doesn't take a holiday. A pastor friend in New York was driving on Christmas Eve with his 14-year-old daughter and a drunk driver, an illegal alien, swerved across the freeway and slammed into their SUV at burst into flames instantly. It was a violent, terrible crash. Thank God there were bystanders standing by that rushed into the burning flames of the SUV to pull out Pastor Tony and his daughter, Gianna. And by God's grace, they both survived, not without severe complications and reconstructive surgeries and skin grafts from the burns and all of that, But the fact is, is that you don't know when your time is going to come. And we must be ready. I love the story of the thief on the cross. You know, and let me just read it for you, these few verses. We all know the story that Jesus is crucified in between two thieves. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, we are indeed suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve in our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
I know many of us are Christians who are presently trusting in Christ and his ongoing merit for us for salvation. But if there's any here outside of Christ, are you like that thief with a hardened heart, hurling abuse, unwilling to see him as a Savior? Oh, I beg you, flee to Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it speaks to us. We thank you for this glorious account of the virgin birth and even the mission of Christ. We thank you for this greatest mission ever recorded, ever planned, and ever succeeded. Millions upon millions of people redeemed by this plan and saved, and you lose none. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for our ungratefulness, Forgive us, Lord, for our grumbling and complaining at various times. Help us to be thankful for what you've done for us. Lord, you are an amazing God. The complexities of the plan of salvation go beyond what our our finite minds can even fully understand. But Lord, we believe what is revealed in your word. And we pray for any here who are outside of Christ. May today be the day of salvation. Amen.